This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. Today, talking about Christmas music on the charts with Chris Malanfi. My name is Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today's episode is a fun one for me because I get to talk to one of my people. Chris Malanfi is a critic and journalist who has made analyzing the relationship between pop music, the market, and the charts his specialty. He writes the regular feature, How Did This Song Become Number One?, and he hosts the podcast The Hit Parade, both for Slate.com. I'm talking today to Chris because a couple of years ago, the Christmas season made news because many long-dead legacy artists returned to the pop charts with their Christmas classics. In December 2017, Andy Williams, Brenda Lee, Nat King Cole, and Burl Ives snuck into the Billboard Hot 100 chart, hovering in the upper 30s and 40s with SZA, Taylor Swift, Offset, and Shawn Mendes. A year later, they all moved into the top 20, along with Bobby Helms, while Wham!, Gene Autry, The Ronettes, and Jose Feliciano all moved into the top 40 with Christmas songs, despite the most recent of those songs, Wham's Last Christmas, being released in 1984. Clearly, something was happening that I figured was due to changes in the way Billboard factored streaming into chart positions. And I felt like these results were telling me something about Christmas music. Last Christmas, Chris Malanfi broke down these changes in detail in an episode of the hit parade to explain how Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You finally made it for the first time to number one in 2019, 25 years after it was released in 1994. After that episode, I knew I wanted to talk to Chris about Christmas music and the charts. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. Before we do, though, I should draw attention to this year's Christmas music. This week, Bluegrass Trio Runaway June announced that they will release an EP, When I Think About Christmas, on October 16, and I'll include a link to a Christmas in July radio show they did in the show notes. This season, we also get new Christmas music from the Goo Goo Dolls, Maddie and Tay, and country singer Janie Fricky. Dolly Parton will release her third Christmas album, A Holly Dolly Christmas, on October 2nd, and she's already released her version of I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. And here's a first listen. You're not going to believe what I saw. I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus Underneath the mistletoe last night She didn't hear me creep Down the stairs to have a peek She thought that I was tucked up in my bedroom fast asleep Then I saw Mommy tickle Santa Claus Underneath his beard so snowy check out all those and more this season. But now let's get to my conversation with writer, critic, chart historian, and podcaster, Chris Malanfi. 
first thing I wanted to ask, Chris, is what drew you to sort of chart analysis and made that like your, you know, your bailiwick? I mean, it started in childhood, uh, as so many of these kinds of things do. Um, I often say music is my sports. So I went through a very brief baseball phase as a kid. It didn't last very long, but my love of the charts kicked in when I was a preteen and pretty much lasted my whole life. Um, I first started watching uh, charts on television on the old syndicated show, Solid Gold, which would count down to top 10. To this day, I still, I have no idea what the methodology was for that chart. Right. Um, it was rather opaque, but I figured if, you know, people in Gold LeMay cavorted to <laughs> it on television, it must be a hit. Um, and then soon enough, I think the first time I caught it was maybe 1981 and eventually more regularly in 1983, I caught Casey Kasem on television first doing America's Top Ten, you know, and he had that hair helmet mm -hmm. and that robotically warm voice and that uh that those cosby sweaters and um he would count down the top 10 records and then eventually i discovered him on the radio counting down american top 40 which of course was his flagship and his claim to fame american top 40 predates america's top 10 on television um dates all the way back to 1970 in fact it's celebrating a 50th anniversary this year um and that became kind of my weekly Sunday ritual, not unlike church. Uh, and uh, once I discovered that the 40 records that Casey Kasem was counting down every week were the tip of a much larger iceberg, meaning there was a hot 100 with 60 more records every week, and it was in a magazine, and you could buy this magazine on the newsstand, by 1985, I was buying that magazine. And that sort of became a weekly ritual in and of itself. And I felt like now I was really mainlining the charts, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, and the more you read the charts and sort of look at the magazine and, and understand the breakdown of the data that goes into it, the better you comprehend how hits happen. Right. Um, so, you know, if you flash forward then another two decades, I became a music critic in high school and college. I was writing about music uh, in the 90s, after I graduated college, writing record reviews, that kind of thing. Um, it was only when blogging came along in the 2000s that I realized that there was an audience for, um, you know, fellow chart nerds who really wanted chart data broken down and explained why songs were hits. Right. Uh, and that that became my calling card. And I've been pretty much, you know, focused on that for the last, call it, dozen years or so. Sure. That always strikes me as a really fascinating area to to drill into because sort of for like a generation of rock criticism before, mm -hmm. there was, if not spoken, a kind of an unspoken belief that the charts, you know, were the commercial stuff and the real art was over here. Right. And uh, which was always a problem for me because I, I don't know about you, but I've always thought that that kind of history of rock and roll and that telling of the music story had a fundamentally kind of flawed Rolling Stone angle, which was the story of music right. is told by albums and told by album artists. And I mm -hmm. always thought the story of rock and roll is best told through singles. And that I agree. you can, you know, important you know, that many good album artists also made good singles but a lot of people who didn't make an album worth a damn 
made singles that had a major impact. And so, you know, but that was interesting. When you started to focus on the charts as not just a, a fascination, but as a, your angle into, you know, your critical voice and your critical perspective, was there right. pushback or was the, or was there a change that was happening that you were writing? Well, it's interesting because the way you phrased your question, you were saying that this was sort of unspoken, that it was sort of uncool. And the fact that I graduated college in the 90s, which was the decade of grunge and gangsta, uh, the decade of you know, Nirvana, and a certain sort of uh, rock credibility, um, you know, it's particularly sort of alternative rock credibility, indie rock credibility. The, loving the charts was kind of the love that dare not speak itself. Right. <laughs> You know, and as far back as college, I remember people at my college music magazine, which was mostly focused on, you know, I would call it alternative rock, some mainstream rock. They would say, your taste just seemed very mainstream. And and yet I also simultaneously loved, you know, alternative rock. And, you know, the breakthrough of Nirvana in 1991 was very exciting for me. The fact that it happened on the charts, you know, it kind of my two worlds collided, you know, Um <laughs> Eventually, when I, I was writing uh, in the 90s for um, uh, an alternative rock magazine called CMJ, which stands for College Music or College Media Journal, and it was basically the Bible slash tip sheet of alternative rock. And um, in there, I was mostly reviewing sort of left of the dial music, as we say. Um, but eventually, they let me, you know, review pop records in there. And I even wrote like an installment of a, a series they had talking about my love of the charts, my love of the American top 40. So it started to sneak in. But what you're really identifying in your question is what um, in the critical world we call poptimism, which was which really it, it's a word that apparently dates back decades. It, they're, they're supposedly popists or poptimists dating back to the 80s. But it really took hold in the aughts. The idea that by focusing on rocks acts, you know, the, 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 the antonym of that is rockism, right? Um, you were leaving out massive chunks of music history. And frankly, you were centering white, cis, male, straight performers um, over forms like disco. I mean, what was the disco backlash at the end of the 70s all about? It was about you know, a, a singles-driven medium, not that there weren't great disco albums because there were, but a singles-driven medium that was dominated by Black, female, gay performers. So that if you if you bought into the sort of uh, rockist gospel, you were not being intersectional, a term that is really more of the tens, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and the rise of poptimism, frankly, helped what I do what what finally occurred to me during the blogging year I was talking about earlier in the aughts was that there were people who wrote for Billboard or people who wrote about Billboard magazine who were sort of industry analysts, but they weren't really critics. And then there were critics who were, I was an enormous fan of rock critics, you know, uh, people like, you know, Ann Powers and Chuck Eddy and uh, Kurt Loder were, you know, gods to me. But they would only write about chart data if it was important to make a quick point in an article that was otherwise about something else. There was nobody out there who was writing about the charts at the analysis level, the business level, who wrote like a critic. And that was my secret sauce. So mm -hmm. when I started doing this around 2007, 
writing about the charts like a critic, I realized there was a niche there. And right. that has become my calling card. So now to this day, if like NPR or somebody wants somebody to talk about the Billboard charts who doesn't work for Billboard and writes with a critical lens, they call me. Right. Which is great. Yep. The uh, I'll tell you what I was thinking as you were talking about that and you're talking about the how the uh, the traditional story focuses, you know, on specific you know artists but also realize in the process that leaves out it, le- it also focuses on specific audience i was thinking right. about when i i one i taught uh, at the local community college for a while taught english and the first thing i did with one of my classes because i thought this would be an easy way to see kind of a little bit of who they are and see what they could do is i asked them to tell me to write you know two pages three pages on their favorite song and it became a catastrophe because there were so many of my students who were like, I like the one that goes, you know, and that, and, uh, and they knew, and they, really they knew what they that. heard. They heard in the radio, they heard in their car, they heard in the club and yeah. that they didn't, you know, and it was a lot of my audience a lot of my, uh, student body was lower income and that they didn't necessarily, this is, you know, pre uh, pre uh, MP3 pre download, they weren't necessarily in pre streaming, so they didn't necessarily have an immediate access. They didn't have a physical object in their in their hands at their house, mm-hmm. and that their experience was entirely through individual songs, and through individual songs heard through radio or heard in a club, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was like such an eye opener. I was already someone who was by sort of instinct song first album second but then when mm-hmm. i heard but then had this conversation i realized this these people are entirely song and they're not only song but they're song in context and we're having a conversation about music that doesn't mean anything to them even if i was reviewing albums by artists they care about there's so much in here that's just not a part of of their world and that I needed yeah, I mean, to, if I wanted to make my writing matter or, you know, connect to them, I need to be thinking more about who's listening, how they listen them. and what, you know, kind of, what are their, what are their sort of, what, what cultural stuff do they bring when they come to that record? Right. You know, and a thesis of my writing, both um, for my Slate series, my former uh, chart column at the Village Voice and definitely on Hit Parade, I did an episode about this, is um, the core unit of music, I agree with you, is the song. And the I love albums. I obsess about albums. It's not as if I could, I could, you know, bore you now with a long conversation about, you know, my favorite albums, my favorite Beatles albums, my favorite Nirvana albums, my favorite Dusty Springfield album, mm-hmm. um, my favorite Prince album. But um, albums are constructs. And the record industry spent about 30 years, right through the 90s, trying to convince the consumer that music was meant to be purchased and consumed at length because albums were more profitable than singles. I did an entire episode of my Hit Parade podcast called The Great War Against the Single, which was about the 1990s effort by the record industry to kill the single as a retail medium. And when you view it through that lens, what happens with Napster at the end of the decade reads as kind of a 
of of karma biting them in the butt and and a rebellion by the consumer because the consumer fundamentally to your point believes that the song is the core unit of music if an album's great they'll consume an album and in fact you know some of the very audiences you think would not be interested in albums for example teen pop stars actually sell truckloads of albums one direction I just did an article last week about Harry Styles, who just got his first number one single out of One Direction. One Direction did better on the album chart than they did on the Hot 100. Hmm. Um, uh, Justin Bieber had multiple number one albums before he had a number one single. Wow. So like, it's not as if young people won't consume albums if they're obsessed with an artist. But whether young or old, male or female, whatever walk of life you come from the core unit of measure is still the song and uh i love sergeant pepper it's one of my favorite albums but sergeant pepper sort of convinced the industry that they could sell bundles of songs forever and what's basically happened in the digital era is that the song and this will dovetail by the way with what we're going to talk about with christmas music the song the album has been disaggregated first with the 99 cent single on the the iTunes store starting in 2003, then accelerating with Spotify and the era of streaming music in the last decade. Um, Albums are still the way artists group their material. It's still the way things are are promoted. You know, it's the way Drake releases a flotilla of new songs. It's the way, you know, most rappers still release music as in the form of albums, yet they know that their stuff is being consumed as a collection of songs. Right. That's right. that's what's changed. Yeah. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own. One of the reasons that I uh, wanted to talk to you, partly I've been fascinated by the return of Christmas music to the charts and the just the mm-hmm. place of Christmas music in the charts because it has been is partly the thing, partly sort of a function of myth. It's been fascinating to watch how songs dating back to the '40s, dating back to like White Christmas, mm-hmm. would go in it would go off and on the charts over the years, and how you know how how a Christmas song can easily have a life far beyond the, the season it's released in. And uh, so that was already something I wanted to talk about, and I thought you'd be a good person to talk about. But then last Christmas season, you did a, uh, a piece on Hit Parade about how uh, Mariah Carey finally got uh, All I Want for Christmas is You to number one on the charts and how central streaming was to it. And I thought that combination of streaming and Christmas music is a good conversation to have. Since you did 35, 40 minutes on Mariah Carey, 
can you get that one down to about uh, down to two or three so we don't so you don't <laughs> so you don't redo that? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, the Mariah Carey phenomenon. Uh, that record is now, it, it, we're recording in 2000, it's 26 years old. Last year was its 25th anniversary. It was first recorded and released in 1994. All I Want for Christmas Is You is, is an interesting prism through which to view the history of Christmas music and the charts. Because first of all, its sound calls back to an earlier era of Christmas music. Mariah Carey was very openly emulating Though, give her props, she wrote a, a brand new original song that's become a standard, but she was openly emulating the sound of uh, Phil Spector's A Christmas Gift for You, all, all those great Ronettes and Darlene Love songs from his 1963 uh, Wall of Sound Christmas compilation. What's interesting about All I Want for Christmas is You is that it basically tracks a quarter century of changes in chart policy. Even before the 90s, even before Mariah Carey records her Christmas album, Christmas music was always a weird fit for the charts. Because what the, the thing about the charts that I have to keep reminding people is that all they do is measure popularity one week at a time, right? So when we say that a song went to number one, usually we're talking about a run that will last months and crests with a peak at number one. Even nowadays where it's more common for songs to debut at number one, they'll then have a gradual descent that again lasts months, right? Any number one hit with rare exception is on the charts for a period of months. Christmas music is only consumed for about four to six weeks a year, which makes it a weird fit for the charts. So you had very few songs prior to the really the 21st century that were Christmas records that could get very high up in the charts. So for example, a record like Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, which is now played every year, and we'll talk about why in a minute. Uh, I believe its original peak in 1960 when it was released was number 14. Number 14 is actually spectacular for a Christmas record at that time, but it just, it literally was on and off the charts in something like five weeks, and that's all the time it had to get up the chart it couldn't even crack the top 10, despite the fact that it's a, a perennial. And that, that's the other thing about these records is that they come back, to your point about White Christmas by Bing Crosby, it's a record that comes back and comes back and comes back. So what happens with Mariah Carey is that when she issues uh, All I Want for Christmas is You in 1994, first of all, this is the era of what I call the Great War Against the Single. The label is trying to sell CDs. They don't want you to buy just the one single. They want you to buy Mariah's Merry Christmas album, so they don't issue it as a retail single. So it was not available for five bucks or less in a retail store to start with. That makes it ineligible for the Hot 100 under the rules at the time. Flash forward about five years, and again, I'm condensing history here, but one of the, the, the beats of the story of the Great War Against the Single that I cover in my prior podcast is that... Um, Billboard eventually relented and started allowing songs that were not available as retail singles to appear on the chart, bowing to pressure from the record industry. Um, All I Want for Christmas is You is now finally eligible to chart as an album cut, but I believe it spends one week on the charts in the Christmas season of 1999, the year after Billboard changed its policy, and it only gets up to like number 80. So that's, that's another era of All I Want for Christmas is You. Flash forward another, say, four years, five years, and Apple invents the iTunes store, 
right? They invent the ability for you to buy virtually any song for 99 cents, later $1.29, but I call it the dollar download mm-hmm. to keep sure. the terminology simple. They invent the dollar download. They finally crack the, the code on how to sell people, not, not taking music for free, stealing music via Napster, but actually sell you uh, uh, a download. Um, suddenly, every Christmas, they notice that Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is... Um, becoming a top download. In fact, for one week in, I believe it's either the Christmas season of 04 or 05, for one week, All I Want for Christmas is You is the top download in America, even though it's now about a 10-year-old record. So gradually, we have better and better metrics to indicate the popularity of All I Want for Christmas is You. Now, when that download is selling well in the mid-aughts, it's not reappearing on the Hot 100 because Billboard now has other rules. They have a, what's called a recurrent rule where old songs that experience a flurry of popularity, maybe because somebody dies or because it's Christmas or because there's an event in the media or what have you, are not allowed back on the chart if they're a certain age. You, you can't just bounce back onto the chart and bounce on and off every year. Um, flash forward now in a few more years and we invent streaming. Streaming gives Billboard a finer metric of popularity of songs than they've ever had before because now people are not just making one purchase for 99 cents or $1.29. Every time they play that record, it's being tracked, whether at YouTube in terms of video or Spotify. Spotify doesn't actually come to America until 2011, and it's baked into the Billboard charts in 2012. And then the moment I point to in uh, my podcast is uh, this is gonna sound very extraneous. When Whitney Houston dies in February of 2012, um, there's a massive outpouring of consumption, both on streaming services and on in download stores of songs like I Will Always Love You, How Will I Know, I Wanna Dance With Somebody. And Billboard finally relents and changes its policy on the recurrent rule, meaning old records. They basically say if a record amasses enough points to crack the top half of our chart, the top 50, we will allow it back onto the chart. This changes everything. Now, now think of everything that, that's changed now over the course of the prior two decades. Old songs are allowed back on the charts. Um, songs that are only getting played on the radio but haven't necessarily been issued as retail singles are allowed on the charts. Although now, of course, the download, the invention of the download store means everything is now available for sale. Um, you now have the invention of downloads and streaming. All of this conspires, even though the Whitney Houston rule, as I call it colloquially, was meant mostly to kind of make the Hot 100 more finely calibrated for any event of the year that might make an old record come back to the charts. What it really supercharges is Christmas music because Christmas music falls into that category like like an event like a, a major artist dying like Whitney Houston. Christmas music only gets consumed for about four to six weeks a year, but it's consumed in massive quantities. Um, A thing to keep in mind about the Hot 100 also, as I remind people all the time, is it's a hybrid chart. It combines, it used to be primarily two pools of data. Now it combines three pools of data. For the first roughly 50, 55 years of its existence, it was just sales of songs, whatever medium that was, 45 RPM vinyl, then the single, then the CD single, then the download, and radio airplay. Um, 
when streaming becomes a thing in the 2010s, the third pool of data that is added to the chart, and it's now the biggest pool of data, is streaming. So those three things are averaged together to get the chart. So the thing about Christmas music is that on the radio side, Christmas music, we all know this, there are stations that play all Christmas music for the last roughly six to eight weeks of the year. Um, most of them are classic hits formats that don't actually report to the Hot 100, but some of them are adult contemporary or adult top 40 stations that do report to Billboard. So Billboard already has the airplay component of you know, old songs that might get played on a current radio station. Then they allow old songs back onto the chart, and then they, at the same time that they're adding streaming to the chart. This is an ideal data situation for Christmas music. Right. Because it means now that even though that music is only getting consumed in a flurry for four to six weeks each year, Billboard has all the metrics available and the rules allowing the stuff back onto the charts to allow this music to come back year after year. And, and what we've seen year after year is it's had a snowball effect. Every year, records like Mariah's All I Want for Christmas is You and Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and Bobby Helms's Jingle Bell Rock have come back year after year. And we now know just how popular these records are for that brief window every year. And the result, when we finally get to the Christmas season of 2019, is not only does Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You go to number one for the first time in 25 years, because it's celebrating an anniversary and because it just has gotten more popular every year. But the week after Christmas, reflecting data that was collected during the week of Christmas. So the chart, technically it's the chart dated January 4th, 2020, but it really reflects data right around Christmas of 2019. The top four records on the Hot 100 are all Christmas records. Wow. Um, so, and they're all old. Uh, so uh, the records are, let me pull this up. Uh, number one, All I Want for Christmas is You. Number two, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee. Number three, Jingle Bell Rock by Bobby Helms. And number four, A Holly Jolly Christmas by Burl Ives. Those are the top four records in America. And it's all because we now have better data. Right. So there you go. Long answer to your question, but that's that's how this happened. Um, I want to I want to return to that. Um, but I want, because... There's a lot in there to unpack, but I do want to take one last stop at, at Mariah. Because something was occurring to me as you were telling, tracking that story. I, I wonder. Part of me is trying to figure out as you were going through it, what were the were the changes simply changes in count in in the methods of a sort of trying to provide metrics to measure the popularity of the song, or was the song's popularity changing too? And we think about. Were, was it becoming a song by the by 2005 that there was a that it was now what a 10 15 10 year old song about a 10 year old song be, it was old enough that people could start to become nostalgic about it it had started yes. to become a song that had now had become a part been a part of some people's christmases for 10 years it had been a, a song that people who had initially gone through a period they were resistant to it because they were too cool for that Mm -hmm. And they were who were sort of aging through that point where you are your record collection and realizing, mm -hmm. oh, that actually really do like that song. And, and and so we're hearing when we see the numbers changing, we're not just seeing a metric shift. We're actually seeing the growth of affection for that song. You're asking a great question. And the brief answer is it's not an either or. It's a yes and both. 
the both happened. Sure. Um, the fact that you have little indications as early as 1999, when Billboard starts allowing old, um, radio only tracks to appear on the Hot 100, and the Mariah record just barely cracks the Hot 100. And then in the early aughts, when the download store, the dollar download becomes a thing, and suddenly every Christmas, more and more people are buying it. That indicates that there was affection for the record early on. Um, and the affection probably dated all the way back to 1994. But the other part of your question is also accurate in that over time, people became to realize that All I Want for Christmas Is You was, it's been called the last Christmas standard. Right. You know, it's, it, it's very difficult to create a new Christmas standard that really, you know, takes hold and, and gets traction which is why, you know, we have so many recordings of Santa Claus is coming to town or White Christmas. You know, most of our Christmas standards date back 50 to 100 years. Right. Um, all I Want for Christmas is You has become that kind of standard. But to your point, it took time. And here's the interesting part. The, the two halves of your question are interrelated because one thing I always say about the charts, charts are feedback loops. They tell the industry and they tell the public what's popular such that it becomes more popular. And the more that the industry realized that All I Want for Christmas is You was really beloved by the public, think back to that, those, that early chart appearance in 1999, think back to those downloads in 2004, 2005, then radio stations would play the song more and realize, oh, I can play this alongside Burl Ives and people will appreciate it. That in turn makes more people think, you know, this Mariah Carey record, I don't know, I'm not so crazy about Mariah Carey, but boy, that record, you gotta, gotta give it to her. That, 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 that's a great record. Yeah. And I think that happened with a lot of people. It even goes all the way back to something you and I were discussing 15 minutes ago, which is the rise of what I call poptimism. The idea that just because something is recorded by a big voice diva who's primarily on top 40 pop radio doesn't mean that there is a craft and art and classic bones behind what she's doing. I think also the audience has come further in appreciating that you can love both your classic rocker and your classic pop diva uh, in, in, a, in similar measure. And so all these things together, the change in the charts, the, the improved metrics, some of it is just improved metrics, yes. But some of it is also the, the chart as feedback loop and the public's tastes actually evolving and coming around to Mariah Carey. I've even heard some you know, critics and fans even of Mariah Carey saying it is entirely possible that despite the fact that Mariah Carey has the record for most number one hits on the Hot 100 as a soloist, she's second only to the Beatles among all artists. Wow. That 20 to 30 to 40 years from now, the record of hers that is going to be most remembered, ironically, mm -hmm. is not Vision of Love or One Sweet Day or Fantasy or any of her other number one hits. It's going to be All I Want for Christmas is You. Sure. Like her catalog might get all boiled down to that record. Sure. Which is unfair, frankly. And I'm not even that big a Mariah Carey fan, but even I will admit I can, you know, I love Always Be My Baby. I can name right. five to 10 Mariah records I genuinely love. But all I want for Christmas is you is the one that's going to be in the vault in 2050, you know? Yeah. So I, I, you know, you look back and how many artists whose songs have become uh, Christmas standards and, you know, and Andy Williams had a, had a complete career that none of us remember uh, or know anything about except for his Christmas music. There's a right. good chance the, 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 the uh, Bing Crosby song people know is white Christmas. 
Uh, when I these, brought up Brenda Lee earlier, yep. Brenda Lee had two number one hits, neither of which were rocking around the Christmas tree, but what, what gets played by Brenda Lee every year? It's yeah. not sorry. Her number one hit it's rocking around the Christmas. Tree. Sure. That's, that's her record for the vault. Yeah. You know, one last Mariah thought, and then we can move forward, but it occurred to me also, I wonder if part of the affection for that song, besides the song being, you know, a, a really good song is that it's also was kind of a marker of a point where Mariah was someone who was really easy to like and kind of this is everybody sort of everybody's favorite Mariah that you know as time passed as she became she became a bigger personality uh, as she became a, a more erratic personality in public performance and in public spaces mm-hmm. that right. you know that she you know that it w- became harder to be harder to love her sometimes and even if you liked the songs, it was, you know, that she could be a lot. And it's a reminder, you go back and like, that first video is kind of great of her, even if, you know, of, you know, you see her like playing in the frolicking in the snow and like, right. I, I even if I know that's as much uh, image building as anything she did in the next 20 years, I'm buying that image. She can deliver that. And it all felt she was much less contentious to sort of to think about um, around that time. Just to clarify, are you saying that she became easier to love as time went on or she was easier to love back then? She, I think looking back, that's, that was an easy time to like, to, to, to care for Mariah Carey. Because if I were going to, you know, put some nuance around your question, which is very astute, I would say that, there's affection for Mariah, even crazy Mariah, sure. you know, diva Mariah. Uh, oh, did you hear what Mariah did on stage th- this time? Mariah. There, there's a new kind of affection for her. And it's driven in part by the fact that she's not a chart dominator anymore. Right. Frankly, and I admitted this on, a, on, a, on another podcast I was on a few months ago. Um, during the 90s, I found Mariah Carey mostly oppressive. There were records by her I genuinely liked, probably, you know, every fifth or sixth record. I was like, oh, all right, fantasy is a jam. I got to give it to her. Always be my baby. That's a great Mm -hmm. record. Okay, I got to give it to her. But mostly because she was topping the charts on the regular and sort of the dominant, melismatic, you know, five octave range diva, I found her very difficult to love back then. You know what I mean? So even when the records were good, it was sort of like, ugh, another number one from Mariah. Whereas now... This this is true of all sorts of artists. You know, I, I was having this conversation. I just did an episode of my podcast about yacht rock. Mm-hmm. And and the person who was interviewing me was saying, you know, I hated that music in 1979, 1980, 81. Michael McDonald, the Doobie Brothers, Kenny Loggins, you know, I didn't like any of that stuff. And now I have tremendous affection for it. Yeah, because it's not oppressively popular. It's not like, you know, all over the radio and sort of, you know, dominating your day, whether you like it or not. And I think it's similar for Mariah Carey where her kind of rafter raising diva, we have new models now, right? Ariana Grande has been called baby Mariah, Mm. you know, so it's not as if we don't have singers who sing like that nowadays, but it's not, the Mariah model is not everywhere the way it was in 1994. And so I think there's affection for all I want for Christmas is you, where even if you're not a big Mariah fan, you got to give it up for that record. And and enjoying it for about six to eight weeks a year is like maybe just an, just the amount of Mariah you need in your life. Yes. You know, like 
okay, around November 15th every year, I start hearing this. Frankly, by December 23rd, I probably don't need to hear it anymore, but hey, it's kind of kitschy. And then I don't need, and then it's gone. It's off the radio by December 26th, 27th, and we're done. Right. That's not a bad bargain with the Irv of Mariah. <laughs> yeah. three in the in that in that uh christmas uh, uh chart is actually although we spent this much time on mariah in ways that's a more interesting question to me because the big picture that song is so undeniable and deniah and, and mariah is a major talent and so it's not a surprise that all i want for christmas is you eventually found its way to number one but at this point we have in uh, you know, Brenda Lee, uh, Bobby Helms, and Burl Ives, we have hits by three people who are all dead. Right. And songs, I'm guessing that the most recent of those is Holly Jolly Christmas, which I'm going to put at around 66 or so, That would because that would come from the uh, Rudolph. Like that. Or maybe 64, but yes, it's mid-60s. I think yeah. you're right. Because so it's, it's, it's from the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, animated right. uh, special. So right. none of those none of those are artists who have remained sort of in the pop conversation mm-hmm. as we you know we don't you know they're they're not people who we just sort of reflexively look back on fondly um I mean Bobby Helms after this nobody has another Bobby Helms song on the tip of their tongue um Burl Ives I mean I had to go back and look up that Burl Ives career was basically as a folk singer uh sort of right. folk revival guy and so, by the way, I will correct one point you made, which is I just Googled to check this. Brenda Lee is still alive. Oh, good. Oh, yay. Excellent. Thank you for correcting, for correcting me on that one. Um, yeah, Wikipedia is to be believed. She's yeah. still with us. <laughs> so, um, anyway, but go on. But Otherwise, yes. your point holds. Yeah. No, and I'm, and I'm very happy about that. Um, yeah. So am I. So, by the, so anyway, um, have you thoughts about any thoughts about why those songs have have emerged, have come to the top in ways, in ways that like, for instance, in a way that like a, like a, you know, like a, a happy holidays by, uh, uh, Peggy Lee, uh, I think it was Peggy Lee. Uh, but in a way that other, other old, other Christmas classics haven't necessarily. I mean, I can speculate. Sure. Um, the fact that you mentioned the, the fact that the Burl Ives song is associated with a beloved television Christmas special that comes back every year. You know, nothing makes a hit a perennial like a TV or a movie connection. Uh, that's something I've observed many times on the charts. You know, television is, is a powerful medium for making hits. So that probably um, contributes to its popularity. Um, 
I would say also in all four of these cases, the Mariah record, the Brenda Lee record, the Bobby Helms record, and the Burl Ives record, those have all been covered many times, but those four versions are really iconic. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to beat the Brenda Lee version of Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. It's kind of hard to beat the Bobby Helms version of Jingle Bell Rock. Daryl Hall and John Oates, for example, in the 80s had a version of Jingle Bell Rock, but theirs now sounds kind of dated to the 80s, so I never hear it. You know what I mean? Right. So some of, you know, and a big, a big thing that I remind people about the charts is that it's measuring, it's not measuring songs, it's measuring recordings, technically. Right. So if a single recording of, you know, one of these Christmas chestnuts is overwhelmingly the more, most popular, it's going to get all of the consumption or most of it. Right. I'm sure somebody is listening to the Hall of Notes cover of Rockin' Around the, or uh, excuse me, Jingle Bell Rock. But overwhelmingly, if you want to hear Jingle Bell Rock, you want to hear the Bobby Holmes version. These records are hits because they're hits. And here's what I mean by that. That's lame, but here's what I mean. Once streaming was invented, even more so than radio, right? Radio is extremely heavily researched, right? So the records that adult contemporary radio puts back in rotation every year, the Jingle Bell Rocks and Rockin' Around the Christmas Trees, they've tested with listeners to make sure uh, they want to hear this and not this. They want to hear this and not this. So that's one level of very detailed audience call-out research. Streaming blows that out of the water. Streaming tells you with a fine-tooth comb, this is like, like a mouse with a pellet. This is the song that people keep clicking. There's something about Brenda Lee's version of Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree that says Christmas to folks, and if they are throwing a party, if they are having people over, this is a record they play. It, it, it makes Spotify playlists. It gets downloaded. So you, the digital metrics really narrow things down. And that enables, it, it, not unlike the Mariah record, right? The fact that these are the four records, all I want for Christmas is you, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Jingle Bell Rock, A Holly Jolly Christmas. It, it affirms, to go back to Mariah for a second, that the Mariah record is now a standard. Right. But that the recording by Mariah is the one. Sure. Much the way the Brenda Lee, Burl Ives, and Bobby Helms are kind of the, the signature one. It's not scattershot among multiple versions. Most people want to hear the Mariah version. Most people want to hear the Brenda Lee version. Right. And so I think some of this is just data aggregation where people have settled on this is the the one I want to hear. Yeah. Um, whereas with other standards, you know, I, I love... Um, you know, th this is a point I like to make to people. This is a musical point. Uh, we now take for granted after 1963 that the song Santa Claus is Coming to Town does not go, Santa Claus is coming to town. After Phil Spector, it now goes, Santa Claus is coming to town. It's been, you know, bluesed up and R&B'd yeah. up. And now every version since then, most versions, right. Jackson 5, Bruce Springsteen in his famous live recording of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Most people do the Santa Claus is Coming to Town. 
But the reason you don't see Santa Claus is coming to town charting as well is because I've now just named three iconic versions. The version on the Phil Spector record, I think it's by the Ronettes. Ronettes. I think. Yes. Um, uh, The Jackson 5 version, which I hear every Christmas, and the Bruce Springsteen version, which I definitely hear. Though not, no one of those is going to be like the sole iconic version. Hence, you don't see one version of Santa Claus is coming to town appearing in the top 40 in this new streaming era. Whereas those top four records, those are kind of the standard version now. If you perform White Christmas, any version of White Christmas you perform has to live in the orbit of Bing Crosby. If, right. you, per- if you choose to perform another version of Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, it orbits around Brenda Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you perform Santa Claus is Coming to Town, there is no central version that is the definitive one everyone refers to. And if there is, it's the Ronettes and not, uh, mm-hmm. not Eddie Cantor. You know, I'm checking that chart from last Christmas, you know, the week after Christmas, the one I mentioned with mm-hmm. the top four over those records. And White Christmas by Bing Crosby did re-enter the chart, but only at number 42, which basically says to me, okay, the Bing Crosby version is the standard, it's iconic, but there are also a lot of versions of White Christmas sure. after Bing. And and frankly, Bing's version, it's a classic for a reason. It's a great song. My my uh, friend and colleague, Jody Rosen, wrote a whole book about White Christmas. A great book, I've got um, it. it. It's a legendary song for a reason, but it sounds like a record from the 40s. Yeah. And so it's a little harder to program, I guess, than a record from the 60s. Right. Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten How does Sirius uh, factor into uh, the charts? Are they, are they counted uh, by Billboard? Typically not, no. Sirius, um, Sirius is a weird gray area where because of the multiplicity of their channels and the specificity of their channels and that they're not terrestrial radio, I don't think they are tracked uh, for the Hot 100, which is a problem because a lot, an increasing number of people listen to their radio that way. Um, still not more than good old-fashioned terrestrial radio, the old-fashioned kind. Um, but you will, you often find uh, my friend uh, and colleague Sean Ross, who's kind of the radio guru. He will have conversations with, well, this isn't bigot radio, that isn't bigot radio. And people say, I just heard it on the radio the other day. And he'll ask them, do you listen to Sirius? And they'll say, yes. It's because Sirius's model is so much different than the kind of wide swath of audience that a typical terrestrial radio station is looking for. They can be happy with a much smaller, more finely grained audience. So it's, it's a different model. You know, the thing I think is fascinating when we look at those charts is that you have those four songs charted in, uh, above uh, Wham's Last Christmas, which I think next yeah. to, uh, which is the closest thing to All I Want for Christmas is You to a modern uh, standard. Right. Thoughts about why these, why others passed Wham uh, or why Wham has, yet, has not yet sort of found the, found the uh, sort of the critical juice to move, uh, to become one of those top songs? I think that Wham! is in a growing phase where it's snowballing, pardon the bad pun, every year. 
uh, just a little bit more. I have noticed just in my own experience out in the world that in the last five years, really recently, Last Christmas has become the companion to the Mariah record in the sense it's the it's the only other late 20th century Christmas standard. It's also been covered a lot. I would also say that the the conversation we were just having about versions, without question, the Wham! version with George Michael singing is the iconic standard version. It's the original recording. However, there seem to be a lot of covers of Last Christmas. It's made quite a few other records. Um, I believe Ariana Grande did a version. Yes. Uh, and and there, there have been others. So you... <sighs> You know, nobody beats the vocal by Mariah Carey on All I Want for Christmas is You. Michael Buble did a cover of All I Want for Christmas is You. Others have done covers, but nobody's going to blow Mariah out of the water. George Michael is actually an amazing vocalist. I don't want to pour mouth George Michael, but it's possible, you know, Last Christmas is not a the, the lung buster that All I Want for Christmas is You is. Hence, you know, if Ariana Grande takes her spin through it, there are other versions of Last Christmas you can play. I think what's happening, though, is that Gradually, the fact that last Christmas, I'm going back to the chart right now, made it as far as I think number 12 or 14, um, 11, excuse me, it, it got to number 11 this last Christmas. Who knows? Right. It's entirely possible that it will crack the top 10 this coming Christmas. Um, because again, what we've seen since these metrics have changed in the streaming era, just in the last seven, eight years since you know 2012. Um, is that the feedback loop, you know, and by the way, even if you take the charts out of it, I'm not claiming that everybody in America is looking at the Hot 100 sure. every week, certainly not. But Spotify users, you know, tend to click what what starts popular snowballs in popularity. So right. you, you've seen that not only the Mariah record, but all sorts of these other records have just grown in popularity year after year. So it's entirely possible that Last Christmas by Wham, the original recording, is just getting more popular in the streaming era year after year, and it's just going to keep getting more popular. Right. So the big picture question I was thinking about when I started looking at the success of classic Christmas songs in uh, in, the, in the streaming, I mean, as, as sort of how these numbers change as a result of streaming, is that this is telling us something about Christmas music. That, for instance, that people that people want it, people love these songs, but they don't necessarily love them so much they want to purchase them because they are such a niche thing, or mm -hmm. and, and that they may want the song, but they don't necessarily again want the album. Um, right. That uh, so, what's kind of your takeaway when you think about about the about the performance of these songs and the way they've changed? or what, what the current charts tell us about their popularity? Yeah, that's a good question. On the one hand, actually, you know, the story of the last 20 years is that sales of CDs, sales of music in general have gone way down. Yet, certain Christmas albums do sell remarkably well year after year. The Michael Buble Christmas album, which is now, I think, about eight years old, Pentatonix Christmas albums, uh, Josh Groban's uh, Christmas record from 2007 was a blockbuster and still, I believe, returns to the charts every year. In fact, uh, Billboard, not unlike their change in the rules to the Hot 100 where they started allowing old records to come back, starting about 10 years ago after Michael Jackson's death, they began allowing old albums back to the album chart 
they no longer had to be segregated onto a, a, a so-called catalog albums chart. And what you find is that the album chart gets overwhelmed, swamped even by uh, Christmas albums each year. So there's a there's a component of it where the, these albums still do sell. I think people see the value of having something on CD where depending on you're with family and you know, maybe you don't have a good signal or you're in the car, you know, for that brief season, it's useful to own this stuff. Um, but you're right that a lot of these one-off tracks, you're not going to buy a Burl Ives CD. Right, you know? right. If you want to hear a Holly Jolly Christmas, you're just going to dial that up on Spotify. Um, and so some of this is people changing their habits. There are certain uh, genres, for example, uh, country music is the one that most people cite that people have clung to the older ways longer. So, you know, country was one of the last genres that still sold okay on CD. Um, one thing they've noticed during the pandemic this year during COVID-19 is that country is the fastest growing genre on Spotify, on, 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 uh, on-demand audio services like Spotify, Apple Music, et cetera. And why? Because the habits of country listeners are finally changing. They can't go to the store to buy CDs anymore. So they're finally saying, all right, I guess I will subscribe to Spotify or I will start streaming my music rather than buying my music. I think some of that's happening with Christmas music as well. Christmas music is like country music, a very sort of traditional form that continued to sell well on physical goods for a longer period but is now finally making that last migration. You realize in a world where Wi-Fi is pretty much everywhere, your phone has more data than it did five years ago. And you know, you can you can have Bobby Helms whenever you want. It's just more efficient to stream these records rather than own these records. And so I think you're seeing habits changing. Right. Thanks to Chris for the time and the talk. You can check out his work at Slate.com. If you have thoughts about today's episode, you can talk to me about them on Facebook at 12 Songs of Christmas. You can find my other writing on music and culture at MySpiltMilk.com. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. The most recent episode of the Hit Parade is a deep dive into the idea of the one-hit wonder, and in it, Chris turned me on to a Christmas song I'd never heard before. While talking about the Macarena and Los Del Reo, he mentioned the Christmas Macarena, a song I'd never heard before. I have now, and we'll go out with that today. Talk to you again next week.